Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The New Statesman. I'm Megan Gibson. I'm Katie Stallard. And you're listening to the New Statesman podcast. In this episode, Russia is waging a war on the future in Ukraine. Hello, I'm Megan Gibson, foreign editor at the New Statesman. Joining me via a video call from Warsaw is Katie Stallard, who is currently traveling back from Ukraine, where she has been reporting on the conflict for the New Statesman this week. So you've spent the last week and a half traveling back and forth between Kyiv and Eastern Ukraine. Before we get into the meat of this week's magazine piece that you've written for us, I wanted to ask you about what the mood on the ground in Ukraine is like. I'd say two things. One is just this sheer exhaustion. I think it's easy to lose track when we're looking at this from the outside and to sort of see it in more abstract terms, to see it in terms of the lines and arrows on the map and how many kilometers were gained or lost today. I think it's just the sheer exhaustion um, and the, the damage that this is doing to people's lives and how long this has been going on for that I think really struck me. You know, I was there for, for 10 days and people have been living with this for for 18 months um so there's a real i think people talk about moving into this attritional phase of of the war on on the battlefield but i think that's very much there too in this you know when we talk about this war on civilians this is a real attritional phase where russia is just really trying to wear down the population break people break the economy destroy their their will to go on so it's you know it, it, it's really grueling what what people are living through there but I think the other point is that yes people are exhausted people are fed up people will tell you how hard it is how terrifying it is but there is no sense then of and therefore we should come to terms with Russia um, not not a single person said look I think we need to start thinking about an off-ramp we need to think about how we get out of here again and again the message was look it's hard it's tough it's a really awful situation but we're not ready to give up the main concern people had was that the outside world might give up on them that Europe and the West might start to turn away when we were planning this trip in like you know months and weeks up to you leaving we weren't planning to send you to the front line or anywhere that was active strikes going on but you kind of found them I wanted to ask you about the missile strikes that occurred on residential areas when you were in the region and what the immediate aftermath of that was like. Yeah, so the real focus of the trip was to try to look at what is this like for regular people who are 
living through this? If you're a family, if you've got children, what is this like day to day? And the idea was to try and find a community that is living with this, but is not in what people there talk about as like the hard frontline areas. So the irony is we had settled on this small city in the Donetsk region called Pokrovsk, which yes, Donetsk is the region that has seen the heaviest fighting. It's about 50 kilometers from the frontline area, but it's the kind of place that people thought was relatively safe. Like, yes, they're within rocket fire range. So there is, there is a degree of danger there, but it's not one of the communities that's being hit day in, day out. So we thought that, that would be a good place to sort of base ourselves as somewhere that's close to the frontline areas, but not right on frontline areas. But then on the second day of reporting, I think it was then Pokrovsk was hit by two missiles. And so I'll, I'll come back to this two missile thing because you bring up something really interesting in your in your piece, a, a strategy. But these missiles were ostensibly, according to Russia, meant to hit a military target. But in fact, they hit residential buildings. Yeah, I mean, I was there. I looked all around the uh, all around the strike area. This was a, a city center. This is a a small city. 80,000 people lived there before the war. It's about around a third of that number now. The target that Russia seems to have been aiming for is a small hotel in the city center, which is somewhere that journalists and aid workers would often stay because, like I say, people would kind of base themselves in Pokrovsk as a relatively safe hub and then move on from there to the more frontline areas. It's important to say that, yes, there were also off-duty military um, would sometimes do the same. You would see soldiers in the town, um, but that doesn't mean it was a command post. It wasn't a military facility. This is very much a civilian hotel um, with a small pizza restaurant next to it that also had been shut for five weeks before this happened. The missiles hit that hotel. They, I mean, I would say around five floors were, were, were caved in of the, of the hotel, but they also destroyed the residential block right next to it. So there was a high rise block of flats immediately next to the hotel. And that was incredibly badly damaged. There were a lot of casualties. You know, this is the type of place where there was a children's playground directly outside um, the block of flats. So this was a residential area in the city center. It's somewhere where people took their children out to play at night. I, I talked to people who were doing exactly that um, the night of, of the strike. And these are the type of places that are being targeted, that are being destroyed. And yes, Russia says it, it targeted a, a military command post, but there is no evidence whatsoever that that is what this was. This seems much more like just a brutal strike on a city center that was intended to inflict real terror and which was also there was a timing element to it um, that made it even more cruel which is that the first strike hit so just after seven o'clock in the evening when a lot of people were at home in those flats they were making their dinner they were coming home from a from a long day at work the first strike hit the emergency services responded people ran out to try and help um, people from the first strike 37 minutes later, the second strike hit. So it seemed to have been deliberately timed to hit 
the rescue workers and it and it killed rescue workers one of the people killed was the deputy in charge of emergency services in the region who had rushed there to try to help he was killed i spoke to a police officer everybody who could had gone to the strike to start to help they were giving people first aid they were putting them in ambulances they were pulling people out from under the rubble and then the second strike hit so the second strike there were dozens of rescue workers injured in the second strike. So there is a real cruelty and it's a deliberate tactic. It's something that Russia has used before um, that became notorious for doing in Syria. But so in your piece, you called it the double tap strategy. So it's very methodical. Yeah, so it's a known technique and it's designed to cause terror and to mean then the next missile strike do you, if you're a firefighter or a police person, you know that when you're responding, when you're trying to save people's lives, there could be another one coming. So it's, it's a technique that Russia is using very cynically and very deliberately to inflict the maximum casualties and to inflict real terror uh, on these populations. And another dimension that you write in your piece of, of you know, Putin's strategy is targeting hospitals, targeting care centers in an effort to destabilize the country's healthcare infrastructure. I mean, one doctor you spoke with said that putting a red cross on a vehicle here is putting a target on it and that Russian forces actually target ambulances. So that's that's another element, I guess, of, of this double tap strategy. The ethos behind it is, you know, targeting civilians, targeting the infrastructure that's trying to to help those on the ground. Yes, this was actually what I had gone to Pokrovsk um, a couple of days before the strike to talk to this doctor, an extraordinary British-Ukrainian doctor who's working out there with the charity Smart Medical Aid. And she was flicking through the photos on her phone, showing me this ambulance was hit with an RPG, with a rocket-propelled grenade. Uh, this ambulance, you can see the shrapnel all down the side of it. She is helping to source and distribute ambulances to these um, frontline areas. And she says some of these groups are on their fourth or fifth ambulance from her because they get destroyed. So then they start to think about tactics. And one school of thought is then you disguise that it's an ambulance. So a lot of these ambulances are the type of ambulances people are used to seeing driving around the UK. They're fluorescent yellow and green. One of the schools of thought is you paint them dark colors so that it's not obvious that it's an ambulance because you know it might be it might be a target the other school of thought is no the only protection we have is to show we are very clearly civilian medical workers this is not a military um, vehicle and to to hope that that gives you some sort of protection but again and again it doesn't and she I mean she was very blunt about the risks people face she said you know now when she can't get hold of somebody the thought that goes through her mind is not maybe their phones out of batteries. It's have they been hit? Have they been killed? These are the kind of realities that that people are dealing with there. And she said she sleeps with her clothes on because if something happens to her and they find her under the rubble, she wants to be covered up. This is a doctor who's in this area just trying to provide life-saving first aid these are the kind of risks that they face and as she said what what are we supposed to do throw tourniquets at them you know these are really heavy military munitions targeting civilians and targeting medical workers and there are stats to back 
that up. A couple of weeks ago, there was a report that more than a thousand hospitals and medical facilities have been hit since the start of the war, that the average is two a day. Um, so that's not coincidence. That's not random. That's not them just being caught up in this. This is part of a deliberate ploy to really try to degrade Ukraine's healthcare system and to target people who are helping, who are trying to help people to to keep living in these areas um, and and to provide you know just really basic healthcare and first aid to people. After the break, we'll talk about the most disturbing element of Putin's campaign. If you're subscribed to the New Statesman, you can get all of our episodes ad-free on the New Statesman app. You can get it in both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. The most disturbing aspect of this campaign against civilians has been the targeting of the next generation, targeting children, targeting schools. You mentioned you saw a destroyed playground that parents had taken their children out that evening to children's hospitals, maternity hospitals, this really quite apparent and deliberate attempt to terrorize and destroy the future literally, of the country and the people who live there. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your reporting to this end. I mean, I think one of the most striking things that one mother said to me, I was asking about how her own children were coping. She has a five-year-old and a 14-year-old, um, how they were coping, what they understood about the situation. And she said, oh, it's, it's easier on the younger ones because they don't remember a time before the war. It's just a terrible reality for these for the for children and for parents that that honestly you think that it, maybe it's better that they don't remember what they used to be able to do that they used to go to school in real life with their friends that they used to be able to go and hang out and play in the fountains in the city center you know this mother was talking about her her teenage son who before the war was really into karate, he was into swimming, he was into chess, he liked to go camping with his friends, and now she's scared for him to play outside. So he stays at home, he plays computer games, the doctor says he's starting to have some problems with his eyesight and he needs to spend less time on the screen, but what else is there for him to do? How can she keep him safe? I should say it's not like this over all of Ukraine. So if you're in. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. Kiev, for instance, which has extremely good air defenses, there are still air raid alerts on a fairly regular basis, um, but the main danger there is from the interception. So 
while I was there, for instance, hypersonic missiles were, were intercepted by the air defences and some of the debris fell on parts of the city. So those are the types of dangers. I mean, there, there's always a danger that something will get through the air defences, but it's much less of a, a, a visceral, real, real concrete threat there than it is in these um, in these communities in the East. But you're still, as a parent, having to make these same decisions. So if the air raid warning goes off three times a night, what do you do? Do you get your children up? Do you put them in the bathroom? Do you take them down to the shelter? How do you get up and work the next day? How do you function as a family if you're taking your children to the park? Um, you, I, th- I found um, I always sort of had one eye on the sky, which is ridiculous because you're not going to see it coming. Um, but there is just this sense of something could happen. And it's a real exhausting, harrowing reality for parents living there that they want their children to have a normal, happy childhood. But they're living with this threat that at any moment the siren can go off on your phone. And, and then, you know, you have to make these decisions about how do you give your children a normal life? How do you keep them safe? So beyond its immediate cruelty, what could be the long-term effects of this strategy? What is Putin aiming for? So I spoke to a Ukrainian journalist who had been taken captive in Kherson last summer, who got to know one of his captors um, a little bit, a man who um, identified himself as a captain in the FSB, the Russian security service. And he asked him, what do you want from me? What do you want from Ukraine? And he said his answer really for him summed up the ethos of this campaign, which was he said either you will be with us or we will kill every last one of you. I think this campaign is, you know, we've seen Putin's military strategies fail. The initial idea and the, you know, the, this terribly misguided plan that he would topple Zelensky, take control of Ukraine and, and the population wouldn't resist obviously was wrong. The idea that Russia could overpower Ukraine on the battlefield obviously was wrong. What he has left is really destroying the country. It is a real, if I can't have it, nobody can. He can't win the war, but the way that it's set up right now, particularly you know, the South and, and the East where the heaviest fighting is taking place, the Russian troops are so well dug in. They have really well-established positions that you know they can't make forward progress, but it's also very difficult for Ukraine to push them out. So if we're heading into a sort of long attritional war over many years, then the key test is which, which country and which society can survive it, can keep going for longest. So by targeting Ukraine's civilians, by targeting Ukraine's infrastructure, by targeting the economy, Putin is trying to destroy Ukraine's will to resist. It's a terrible, brutal, cynical strategy. Um, but that's what he that's what he has left. Um, and that's what he seems to be determined to do. And 
you know, there are also cold-hearted economic calculations. I spoke to a, an economist in Kiev who was talking about particularly the strikes that we've seen in recent weeks on the export infrastructure um, for grain, for sunflower oil, but also Ukraine exports um, steel and iron. These are important parts of the Ukrainian economy. He was very blunt about Russia is having more success with its economic war than it is with its military war. And these things are all connected because if Ukraine can't export its goods, people lose jobs, the state loses taxes, and all that means that there is less money to fund the military, to, to, fund, to fund the defense against Russia. So it's a real all fronts, all of society war on Ukraine to halt its trajectory towards Europe, towards this modern democratic future that its citizens want, and to drag it back into Putin's vision of where Ukraine's place in the world is. Um, and so unfortunately, there will be more like this. And you know, that wasn't even the only missile strike that week. Two days later, there was another one on Zaporizhia. The next day, there was another one. The next day, there was one that, that killed a small boy. You know, this is happening day in, day out. Irina Rubinkina, the, the doctor who I spoke about earlier, was saying because the numbers now are you know, often it's one people or two people or five people were killed that day. She fears that maybe that's not shocking enough to the outside world anymore. Maybe that's beginning to drop out of the headlines. Maybe that's beginning to not be news. But people in Ukraine are living with this reality every day. And, it, and it's it's cumulative. It, it's exhausting. And it, and it appears to be a real long-term strategy that is going to continue. Yeah, I mean, it strikes me when you say the long-term strategy and if Putin is digging in for, you know, five years, 10 years, and they already have a strategy of, you know, we'll attack the economy and, you know, impact the, the level of like state funds that can be funneled towards the war effort. I mean, by targeting schools and the next generation, even if the children aren't directly killed, but if they end up being driven out of the country, that will have a long-term effect on the next generation of, of soldiers who can fight for Ukraine if, if they all end up fleeing. Well, there's also there's an immediate economic impact to that too. It, it is mostly women and children who are outside Ukraine. The figures that I saw were, I think, 2.8 million women of working age are currently inside Ukraine. And again, there are, the economists have done calculations on what happens if they don't come back, how damaging that is for Ukraine's economy. Ukraine needs its citizens to be able to be working, to be contributing to the economy, and that in turn contributing to Ukraine's defense. If you create a situation where people don't feel safe, where they feel like their only option is to either leave the region and leave the jobs and leave the businesses that they had or to leave Ukraine altogether, then that has a real cumulative long-term effect. Some of the people I spoke to in Pokrovsk were making exactly that decision. A lady who was quite badly hurt in the, in the missile strike, she had worked to set up her own business. She ran a hair salon in the city. It was what she had always wanted to do, but now, she just wanted to get away. She said, I don't, I don't see how I can have a future here. Um, I am going to rebuild my life 
but I'm going to do it away from this region. And to be honest, I'm probably going to do it outside of Ukraine because I can't go through this again. So people are having to make these very difficult decisions about how do they keep their children, their families safe, but how do they defend Ukraine? How do they not give in? Because like I said, there is a real determination to to keep resisting. One, one man who was uh, sweeping up glass after the missile strike said, Look, we are ready to keep fighting these stupid monsters. We are ready to keep struggling. Our concern is, will we continue to have the support from the outside because we can't do this on our own? While most of your reporting for the piece centered on civilians and the civilian population, I wanted to ask you just before we wrapped up, what the people on the ground you met, the sources you met, I understand some wounded soldiers who were brought in from the front line, what did they tell you about the ongoing counteroffensive and how it's going? Yeah, I was on a medical evacuation mission with a, some, a volunteer medical battalion that was operating, um, again, in this eastern region and taking guys out who they are stabilized at a position near the front and then they're moved back. Um, and then these volunteer medical units are among the, the many ambulance and medical services that are then getting them further back and getting them to, to specialist hospitals. So firstly, just when you're driving that road up into the Donetsk region towards Bakhmut and Solidar and where some of the heaviest fighting is taking place, you just see ambulance after ambulance after ambulance coming back. Ukraine is, keeps the casualty figures very closely guarded, but the sense you get from speaking to people is that this is really heavy fighting and these are heavy casualties. So the mission that, that I was on had picked up six badly wounded soldiers who'd been, who'd been fighting on those front lines in the east. And I asked them about this kind of offensive and about what should people outside Ukraine understand about what is happening on the front lines, what kind of fighting this is, because I think there can so often be a tendency to focus on in terms of headlines outside Ukraine is it going fast enough? Is the Western equipment making a difference? Is the Western training being put to good use? Basically, is this moving quickly enough? And when you speak to these soldiers about it, one guy said, this is, a, this is not a TikTok war. This is not a beautiful war that snips up into clips on, on social media. This is a real hard, dirty war. He said, what you see is blood, dirt, sweat. This is hard fought. He had been injured in a, in a mortar strike. Um, they're coming under oftentimes very heavy aerial bombardment. It's day in, day out, grueling, exhausting. Um, one, of the, one of the soldiers who was coming out said to me, because I, I asked, what is morale like? How do, you keep, how do you keep going? How are people coping with this? And he said, if you're not scared, you're a fool. Um, anyone who tells you they're not scared um, going into these positions is is either kidding themselves or kidding you so it's you know this is really it's hard fighting the Russian positions are, are pretty well dug in and they're taking serious losses but again every single one of them said as soon as they're cleared as soon as the doctors give them permission they will go back this was very clear cut of 
this is our land. They came here. There was no option but to but to keep going, to keep fighting. There is absolutely no question of giving in, of deciding to give Russia part of the country. Um, that's not on the cards. And again, the message is that I think every single one of the guys I spoke to on that on that evacuation bus wanted people outside Ukraine to understand was we're ready to keep going. We are prepared to keep fighting and keep struggling, but we need support. We need weapons. We need ammunition. One guy said, look, we're fighting for Ukraine, yes, but we're the shield for all of Europe because they won't stop here. So it's all of our struggle and we need support from Europe. We need support from the West. We need that to keep going. So, yeah, I think, as I said earlier, I think there can be a tendency to think about this in abstract terms and to think about kilometers won and loss and, and progress on the map. But at the ground level, this is a really, you know, still 18 months in, it's a very hard fought, very grueling conflict. And I think anyone who thinks it's not moving fast enough should sit down with those guys on that bus and tell them that, that they need to fight harder and they need to do more. Katie, thank you so much. And thank you so much for listening. You can read Katie's Dispatch in the current issue of the New Statesman magazine, available now and online. The link is in the show notes. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Megan Getson, and Katie Stallard. Follow us on your podcast app to make sure you get new episodes as soon as they're released. You can also watch video from this podcast on our YouTube channel. Just search YouTube for The New Statesman. Anoush and the team will be back on Thursday. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure.